It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Chapter 23 of The Silver Horde this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Silver Horde by Rex Beach Chapter 23 In Which More Plans Are Laid It seemed to Boyd that he had never felt such elation as during the days that followed. He trod upon air. His head was in the clouds. He joked with his men, inspiring them with his own good humor and untiring energy. He was never idle, save during the odd hours that he snatched for sleep. He covered the plant from top to bottom, and no wheel stopped turning, no mechanical device gave way without his instant attention. So urgent was he that George Balt became desperate, for the Indians were not like white men and proved a sad trial to the big fellow, who was accustomed to drive his crews with the cruelty of a convict foreman. Despite his utmost endeavors, he could not keep the plant running to capacity, and in his zeal he took the blame wholly upon himself. While the daily output was disappointing, Emerson drew consolation from the prospect that his pack would be large enough at least to avert utter ruin and he argued that once he had won through his first season, no power that Marsh could bring to bear would serve to crush him. He saw a moderate success ahead, if not the overwhelming victory upon which he had counted. Up at the Trust's headquarters, Willis March was in a fine fury. As far as possible, his subordinates avoided him. His superintendents, summoned from their work, emerged from the red-painted office on the hill with dampened brows and frightened glances over their shoulders. Many of them held their places through services that did not show upon the company's books, but now they shook their heads and swore that some things were beyond them. Except for one step on Emerson's part, Marsh would have rested secure and let time work out his enemy's downfall. But Boyd's precaution in contracting the cellar's output in advance threatened to defeat him. Otherwise, Marsh would simply have cut down his rival's catch to the lowest point and then broken the market in the fall. With the trust's tremendous resources back of him, he could have afforded to hammer down the price of fish to a point where Emerson would either have been ruined or forced to carry his pack for a year, and in this course he would have been upheld by Wayne Wayland. 
but as matters stood, such tactics could only result in a serious loss to the brokers who had agreed to take Boyd's catch, and to the trust itself. It was therefore necessary to work the young man's undoings here and now. Marsh knew that he had already wasted too much time in Kavlik, for he was needed at other points far to the southward, but he could not bear to leave this fight to other hands. Moreover, he was anxiously awaiting the arrival of the Grand Dame, with Mildred and her father. One square of the calendar over his desk was marked in red, and the sight of it gave him fresh determination. On the third day after Boyd's deliverance, Constantine sought him out, in company with several of the native fishermen, translating their demands to be paid for the fish they had caught. "'Can't they wait until the end of the week?' Emerson inquired. "'No, they got no money. They got no grub. They say little baby is hungry, and they like money now. So soon they buy grub, they work some more. Very well. Here's an order on the bookkeeper. Boyd tore a leaf from his notebook and wrote a few words on it, telling the men to present it at the office. As Constantine was about to leave, he called to him, Wait, I want to talk with you. The breed halted. How long have you known Mr. Marsh? Me know him long time. Do you like him? A flicker ran over the fellow's coppery face as he replied, Yes, him good man. You used to work for him, did you not? Yes. Why did you quit? Constantine hesitated slightly before answering. Me go work for Cherry. Why? She good to my little brother. You savvy little children, so big. Yes, I've seen him. He's a fine little fellow. By the way, do you remember the night about two weeks ago when I was at Cherry's house? The night you and your sister went out? I remember. Where did you go? Constantine shifted his walrus-soled boots. What for you ask? Never mind. Where did you go when you left the house? Me go Indian village. What for you ask? Nothing. Only, if you ever have any trouble with Mr. Marsh, I may be able to help you. I like you, and I don't like him. The breed grunted unintelligibly, and was about to leave when Boyd reached forth suddenly and plucked the fellow's sheath-knife from its scabbard. With a startled cry, Constantine whirled, his face convulsed, his nostrils dilated like those of a frightened horse. But Emerson merely fingered the weapon carelessly, remarking, "'That is a curious knife you have. I have noticed it several times.' He eyed him shrewdly for a moment, then handed the blade back with a smile. Constantine slipped it into its place and strode away without a word. It was considerably later in the day when Boyd discovered the Indians, to whom he had given the note, talking excitedly on the dock. Seeing Constantine in argument with them, he approached to demand an explanation, whereupon the quarter-breed held out a silver dollar in his palm with the words, These men say this money no good. What do you mean? It's no good. No can buy grub at company store. Boyd saw that the group was eyeing him suspiciously. Nonsense. What's the matter with it? Storekeeper laugh and say it come from you. He say take it back. He no sell my people any flour. It was evident that even Constantine was vaguely distrustful. 
Another native extended a coin, saying, We want money like this. Boyd took the piece and examined it, whereupon a light broke upon him. The coin was stamped with the initials of one of the old fishing companies, and he instantly recognized the ruse practiced in the North during the days of the first trading concerns. It had been the custom of these companies to pay their Indians in coins, bearing their own impress, and to refuse all other specie at their posts, thus compelling the natives to trade at company stores. By carefully building up this system, they had obtained a monopoly of Indian labor, and it was evident that Marsh and his associates had robbed the Aleuts in the same manner during the days before the consolidation. Boyd saw at once the cause of the difficulty and undertook to explain it, but he had small success, for the Indians had learned a hard lesson and were loath to put confidence in the white man's promises. Seeing that his words carried no conviction, Emerson gave up at last, saying, If the company store won't take this money, I'll sell you whatever you need from the commissary. We are not going to have any trouble over a little thing like this. He marched the natives in a body to the storehouse, where he saw to it that they received what provisions they needed and assisted them in loading their canoes. But his amusement at the episode gave way to uneasiness on the following morning when the Aleuts failed to report for work, and by noon his anxiety resolved itself into strong suspicion. Balt had returned from the banks earlier in the morning with news of a struggle between his white crews and Marsh's men. George's boats had been surrounded during the night, nets had been cut, and several encounters had occurred, resulting in serious injury to his men. The giant, in no amiable mood, had returned for reinforcements, stating that the situation was becoming more serious every hour. Hearing of the desertion of the natives, he burst into profanity, then armed himself and returned to the banks, while Boyd, now thoroughly alarmed, took a launch and sped up the river to Cherry's house, in the hope that she could prevail upon her own recruits to return. He found the girl ready to accompany him, and they were about to embark when Chakawana came running from the house, as if in sudden fright. "'Where you go?' she asked her mistress. "'I'm going to the Indian village. You stay here.' "'No, no. I no stop here alone. I go long, too.' She cast a glance over her shoulder. "'But, Chakawana, what is the matter? Are you afraid?' "'Yes,' Chakawana nodded, her pretty head vigorously. "'What are you afraid of?' Boyd asked. But she merely stared at him 